Welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show and sponsored by Yara, the crop nutrition company. I'm Alice Dyer, your host, and as always, just a reminder, if you would like a CPD point for tuning in, you can email the name of this podcast and your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. And before we get started, you may have already heard, but the Crop Tech Show will be going online this year from the 24th to the 26th of November. To register for free, just visit the Crop Tech website. Now, integrated pest management. This might seem like a bit of a buzzword at the moment, and a lot of you might argue that this is nothing new. But moving away from relying on a chemical is becoming even more important. We've got less chemical solutions readily available, issues with resistance, and there's also a lot more political and consumer pressure. So today we're going to hear about some of the ways that farmers can use a more integrated approach. We've got some recent research on encouraging beneficial insects. We're going to talk about how growing a companion crop can help with pest problems and also a look at biological products like many of our colleagues in the horticulture sector use. But first of all, we have Dr. Paul Neve here, who's head of IPM at AHDB, and he's going to tell us why we need to be thinking about IPM more. I'm very well, thank you. So, Paul, IPM is something being pushed, but some would argue that as farmers we use IPM every day, you know, in everyday decision-making, so growing resistant varieties or using pest thresholds. So why is there this need for an increased focus and effort on IPM now? Yeah, I think you're very right there, Alice, that, you know, there's a good deal of IPM being done currently, and often it's not recognised as such. So I think, I think one of the things we just need to do is, is recognise or become better at recognising IPM practice as it exists now. Um, but I think also, I mean, there is a clear argument that we, that we also need to help to encourage even, even greater uptake of IPM. And I mean, I think the reasons for that, there, there are many of them. Clear, clearly, you know, for, for the last 40 or 50 years, plant protection products, in particular pesticides, have been a mainstay of crop protection. And, and they've, great, they've been very effective in, in helping to reduce losses from pests, weeds and diseases. And, and, you know, according to the way we see this at AHDB, pesticides will remain an important part of IPM strategies into the future. But we must must sort of recognise and acknowledge that there's a number of pressures on pesticide use. Um, we've lost up to, up to sort of 50% of available pesticides to regulatory changes. At the same time, we, we've been very, by, by being so reliant on pesticides, we've selected for resistance to a number of those in key pests, weeds and diseases. And, and of course, there's, there's some you know, um, environmental and, and health concerns about the use of pesticides. And all of that also means that we're, we're finding that the, you know, there's less new herb, less new pesticides being developed. Much of the low-hanging fruit has been picked um, and, it, and it's becoming more and more difficult to discover new plant protection products. So I think you know, there's, there's, some, there's some real sort of technical pressures, environmental pressures to, to reduce use of pesticides and I think IPM is, is, the, obvious, is the obvious answer to that. Um, and, and, and if we look at, there are a number of 
policy instruments when we look at the draft agriculture bill, the, the 25-year environment plan, the EU's farms and forms strategy, they all place a greater emphasis on IPM and, and on a reduction on reliance on the use of pesticides. So I think you know what, what we're looking to do is, is just help farmers and growers um, reduce their reliance on pesticides and, and adopt greater, a greater degree of IPM and see that as an opportunity for the future. Yeah, and there are obviously a lot of known methods of IPM out there and sort of more research being done in that area. But what is stopping growers from adopting these methods? What are the kind of barriers to adoption for IPM? Well, I think, again, I'm, I'm going to just sort of start to answer that question by thinking about, you know, the current systems and which, which do rely heavily on pesticides. They're, they're cost-effective. They're relatively simple to use and they're highly effective. So, you know, that, that fact alone means that, you know, farmers and growers are, are, are using pesticides because of that. Um, and, and IPM, by its, by its nature, is, is more complicated. It's more knowledge intensive. It, it, it relies on multiple tactics, so it takes a little more time to implement. It's not just the case of sort of going out in the field once or twice or a few times a year. It's, it's a more sort of holistic strategy. It's also a little bit less predictable. There's a more of a sort of environmental influence in what works and what doesn't. And finally, I'd also say it's sort of it's, it's site-specific. So what works in one place may not work in others. So, so it requires, as again, and it comes back to that thing about being knowledge-intensive. Um, I mean, if you know, I might, at, at, at my peril here, I, you know, I might use a public health analogy. I mean, if, if, you, if you knew you could tackle all of your, you know, as a, you know as I'm talking about so human health here, if, if we knew we could tackle all of our health problems with a few trips to the, to the chemist or to see a local GP for a simple, highly effective course of antibiotics that worked every time, or a vaccination, would, would you take the time to sort of concentrate on diet, you know, buying a gym membership, going to the gym three times a week. Um, but what we're really saying now with, with the situation with pesticides is that, that there is far from its high levels of resistance, so that the, the pesticides are not working so well, and there's less new pesticides on the horizon. We, you know, there's no vaccine available for, for many of these pests and diseases. So I think the, the economics is, is pointing towards sort of a greater focus on prevention because the cures are not so readily available and I think that's where we're really at with IPM that sort of perhaps building in more of a, a, an emphasis on prevention and, and keeping the control and the curative measures in, in our back pocket for when we really need them. Yeah that's a good analogy and I guess it is sort of in our nature just to take the easiest route in whatever it is we're doing and so for those growers um that are using, you know, IPM, um, using a wide range of methods. You said earlier that we need to get better at recognising and rewarding it. But how can we do that? I think this is really key. I mean, you know, how, how can we, as you say, how can we recognise, incentivise IPM um, adoption if we don't really have a very good way of, of measuring it? Um, so I think we do need to, to work towards developing a set of, of IPM metrics which, which acknowledge and recognise IPM adoption. And, and important within that is recognising that often IPM is, a mu- is as much about what you don't do as what you do do. And often those things that, that farmers and growers are not doing, um, where they're not 
using a pesticide or where they do where they're adopting other strategies which may not be solely about pest management but but may have it but may be beneficial in terms of overall pest management systems yeah we really need to recognize all of those things and, and as, as being part of IPM um, so I think it's important to recognize that IPM is not it's not black and white um, you don't either do IPM or not do IPM it's 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 shades of gray mm. um, and, and there are many sort of routes to IPM, and I just think we, you know, one of the things we're keen on doing, working with others at AHDB and building on some nice recent work that has been done, is, is to really develop these IPM metrics so that they, they can be used on farm. And then if, if we're able to better measure IPM practice, then, then it becomes much easier to reward and incentivise it. Yeah, and those routes to IPM is something we're going to look at later on in the podcast. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay, thank you, Alice. Thanks for asking me to contribute. No problem. Next up, we've got Dr. Ben Woodcock here. He's an entomologist for the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, and he's going to tell us a bit more about making use of natural enemies. How are you doing, Ben? You're uh, good. Thank you. Yeah, good. Thanks. So you're involved in a number of projects, Ben, including um, the ASSIST project, which some of our listeners may already know about. But would you mind telling us a bit more about these and what the findings have been so far? Yeah, of course. So the ASSIST project, which is achieving sustainable implementation in agricultural systems, has that goal of integrating diverse ecosystem services, so stuff like pest control, pollination, good soil health, all together to help support agricultural production in a profitable way. Now, very much this, this project is building on some historical work that we did in the past at a site called the uh, Hillston Farm Platform. On that site, what we were aiming to look at was trying to understand how creating semi-natural habitat uh, at the time through the entry-level schemes, sowing, flowerage, fill margins, these kind of things, how they can actually have a benefit not only on biodiversity but also by supporting these beneficial insects, also helping to, to increase crop yield. At this site, we were able to split up a thousand hectare conventional wheat, uh, wheat oyster rate bean farm into lots of different subplots for about 50 to 60 hectares. We were able to look at 0% of land out production, 3% of land out production, 8% land out production move towards these uh, flower-rich habitats. And what we found is that over a seven-year period, because we had detailed yield mapping, we're able to see that where you take 3% and 8% land out production, even though you're accounting for the fact that you've removed these habitats or this area from the cropping field, you can actually uh, uh, compensate for that yield loss. So we see a gradual increase in the relative yield of those uh, sites where we've had this land removed out of production and converted into semi-natural habitats. And this is this really points us towards this idea that you can farm specific aspects of biodiversity, bees, predatory insects, parasitoids. You can do good habitat management to help support those populations. And that, in combination with conventional farming practices, really has that potential to help support crop yield going into the future. Particularly a future that's increasingly less certain when in terms of pesticides with increased regulation, removal of products from the market, and issues of growing resistance to many of these different crops. So when you speak about beneficials, um, are you able to give us an example of 
the kind of beneficials that you're seeing and also how deep into the crop that will go. Yeah, of course. So the big thing with, with agricultural systems, even if you've got something like minimum tillage, which is less less invasive, is that at a fundamental level, each year you're, you're harvesting the crop and you're effectively destroying that habitat. So every year, insects need to move into that crop, beneficial insects specifically. And what I'm talking about there is stuff like bumblebees, uh, which will be very important for the pollination of uh, crops like oil seed rape and fill beans, uh, wild pollinators as well in terms of solitary bees. Um, so this might be mining bees that you often find in the corners of your field. They're like drilling little holes. If you're going to have a look in there where there's bare patches of ground, you'll often encounter them. Predatory insects as well, so ground beetles, spiders, all these different groups, as well as parasitic insects, so parasitic wasps are really important to control of a lot of pests, particularly those that are quite concealed. So, for example, some of the weevils that you get associated with oilseed rape. Now, one of the things that we found is that, that each year they're moving into the crop, and this is it's very variable between species, but we find that you get a drop-off as you move further and further into the field. So, for example, we did studies recently that compared uh, pest control of aphids. We established artificial colonies for aphids and looked at different distances into fields and looked to see how effective pest control was. What we found is that the control of those aphid populations was always greater where you have wildflower fill margins because these wildflower fill margins are providing key resources for these predators. Um, but we found that it dropped off. So after about 50 to 60 meters, it was less effective. Now, now, this has led to some of the research that we're doing in the ASSIST project, where we're currently looking at this idea of infilled strips, which are a strip separated by about three boom widths. So that's you know, 96 meters apart. And what they do is effectively they're a bit similar to the old style beetle bank, but they're not a built up um, habitat. They're just a strip of wildflowers that run through the field. And the idea is, is this provides an access route, a, a runway, as you will, so insects can move from the fill margins that, that support those high populations into the centre of the field. Now, obviously, these infill strips take a bit of a battering. You've got your herbicides, you've got your fertilisers spilling over onto them. So while they're not the greatest habitat necessarily, they still provide a better habitat, a better access route for these insects to get into the field. Um, this, this is true even with stuff like pollinators, because obviously in a field of oilseed rape, you're not attracting bees into the middle of the field because you've got a strip of, of what is effectively grass and a few flowers. But what you find with a lot of insect pollinators is they will tend to follow linear lines, so field boundaries like hedges, but also that differentiation between the oilseed rape crop and the infill strips. So they will use this to move into the field centre. And very much is it's this idea if you want to deliver these key ecosystem services to support crop production, in addition to your conventional management practice, this isn't an either or, this is this is something that helps support it over the top. You may need these access routes. So a big part of the new assist project that uh, is currently being run by uh, Centre Ecology and Hydrology and Rotten Tree Research is to help try to understand how the importance of these infilled strips of wildflowers to help support access of And across these studies, um, is there one specific thing that you see having a lot of merit in terms of um, encouraging beneficial insects? Yeah, I think I think it's it's 
a lot of these manufacturers aren't per se rocket science. It's development of what's gone before. It's that creation of semi-natural habitat. I think one of the big developments that's moving now is the idea of far more targeted seed mixes. In the past, they often dominated by stuff like clovers because they were really trying to benefit bumblebees. Now, a lot of bumblebees have relatively long tongues and they can make use of plants like clover. Um, they, basically, their tongues can get in, into the, the relatively long flowers that you have within clover heads and these kind of plants. A lot of the beneficial insects in terms of pest control, and really, if you're talking about arable systems, pest control is probably more important than pollination in some respects. Particularly when you're talking about something like oils and raid that can often be predominantly wind pollinated. A lot of predators have very short tongues. Now, if they don't have access to relatively open flowers, stuff like umbellifers, uh, stuff like asteraceae, so, so open, wide flower heads, uh, like cow parsley, for example, it's got a very open flower head. They don't have access to pollen and nectar. And although you don't really think of it as predators, they actually need them. So, for example, parasitoids, what, if they don't, aren't able to feed on pollen and nectar, they're not able to lay that many eggs. If they can't lay that many eggs, they can't help control pests. And if you're talking about any kind of threshold-based pest control system, you want to maximize the amount of control to reduce the number of times that you're able to apply, or just for cost purposes or just for the sake of the effort it takes to apply those uh, practices. Yeah, and I think maybe one concern um, when it comes to IPM is that the issues associated with relying on nature. So we're constantly trying to, you know, mitigate against things like adverse weather. So to then put even more faith into something that's not in our control might seem quite a daunting prospect. And, you know, when it comes to things like insect migration, we have an idea, but we never really know when it's going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I think this is one of the reasons why, from, from a personal perspective, I would never be, be along the lines of it. it's either or natural pest control or agrochemicals. I, I think they can work in combination. I think because of the relatively low cost of a lot of insecticides at the moment, they're, they're like, they can be used sometimes slightly prophylactically. However, um, it, it, there, there's definitely this opportunity to reduce their use in combination with uh, um, uh, kind of natural pest control. The unreliability of it is a reality of natural systems. Populations go up and populations go down, and it is not as guaranteed as insecticides, or at least an insecticide that doesn't have resistance. However, as I said, working in combination, it can be a real benefit. One thing that we do see is that when farmers switch to not using insecticides, even when they otherwise a conventional system, they'd be using fungicides or, or herbicides on their land. Often they talk about an initial uh, hump that they need to get over. As I said, talking back to uh, that previous project, there often takes a period of time for uh, populations of beneficials to increase. It can take three, four years for populations to get to high levels. And that's a gradual process. So good management builds those populations. And then it's the reduction in the use of insecticides almost has that feedback loop. They get bigger and better and better. So, you know, at, at being realistic, uh, natural pest control does not have that reliability. And I think very much going into the future, what we're likely to see is a movement more towards direct monitoring within individual fields. We already see this in top fruit industry where you have image recognition software. 
dispense cameras and you're basically able to identify increases in test population. That same technology is likely to be applicable to monitoring uh, predatory populations. So in the future, there's definitely potential for being able to monitor not only your test population increase, but tracking how your predator population increases with that. So to give you information as to whether you need to think about spraying or whether you think you can hold off because, for example, your parasitic wasp population is rapidly increasing. That kind of uh, technology at the moment is probably not viable in arable systems because they're, they're not as valuable as those kind of top fruit industries. But given the reduction in costs of these kind of systems, it's certainly something that is a potential leading on into the future. Yeah, there certainly seems to be a lot of research in that area at the moment. Great, yeah, thank yeah. you very much, Ben. No, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Natalie Wood, you're a country arable agronomist, and I'm here to remind you about fertiliser quality characteristics. The three main things you need in a good quality fertiliser are a high strength score, meaning it can be spread over larger bout widths, uniformity of size and shape of the particles for even spreading and therefore even crops, and finally, bulk density. Think ping pong ball versus golf ball. The heavier, denser particles will spread further and be less affected by wind. Yorabella Axan has all these qualities and more. Visit our website yorra.co.uk for more information. Now, looking again to the role that plants play in IPM, we're going to talk about crop mixtures. And this is the practice of growing two or more crops side by side. Katie Bliss is here to tell us more and she's an agroecologist focusing on crop diversity and she works for Agroecology and the Organic Research Centre. Hi Katie, how are you? Yes, good thanks, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. So Katie, you're carrying out a lot of farmer-led research into how growers can use more sustainable ways of farming and one of these is crop mixtures. So what crop mixtures have you been looking at and how does this kind of tie into IPM? Brilliant, thank you. Yeah, so basically with crop mixtures or intercrops, we're looking to build on the beneficial interactions between the plants. Um, So that's to enable beneficial impacts such as weed suppression, um, repelling or diluting the impacts of pests and and how they're travelling through the field, um, which could be through smell or trap and um, also um, competitive effects as well. Um, and there's other benefits we're looking at around things like standing ability and overall contribution to yield and um, per land area. But most of the innovation is happening in farmers' fields. Um, so we're looking, we're working with a group of farmers um, who have all identified their own objectives because um, it's really very specific to each farm in terms of looking at what objectives you're looking to to work towards um, and to then look at which species mixtures to use. Um, so basically we've got a group of around 20 farmers um, through the Innovative Farmers Field Lab yeah. um, who've been experimenting with a range of intercropping and companion crop mixtures on their farms for these different motivations. Um, so that includes um, wheat and beans for weed suppression, um, different all-seed rape mixtures um, and triticale beans for scaffolding and, and weed suppression. So we're really looking to, their motivations are really looking to how to reduce dependency on, on herbicides and insecticides as well as other inputs, basically. Um, 
yeah, they're looking at a range of benefits and a mixture is appropriate to each of their farms. Okay, and it sounds like the benefits are quite broad. So what kind of results are you seeing? So, as I mentioned, we've got a, quite a mixture of, of farms across the country, um, which includes um, arable um, conservation ag, organic farms, mixed farms. Um, so maybe I could just give a few examples of, of what some of the farmers have been trying and the kind of benefits that we've been seeing. Um, so we're working with a farmer called James Hares um, at Roundhill Farm in Wiltshire, um, which is a mixed organic farm, um, beef, where they have suffered quite a bit with large wild oak burden, um, particularly in beans, as is common in legume production, being able to compete with the weed. So he's really looking for something to fill the niche of the wild oats to, to compete it out. So basically looked at wheat as to take that niche of, of the wild oats. Um, for weed suppression. We've done two years of trials. So in 2018, he drilled the Malika wheat um, with tundra beans um, at 174 kilograms per hectare of wheat and 125 kilograms per hectare of beans, and then a monoculture treatment of 125 kilograms per hectare of beans. Um, basically, his objective was to, to harvest them together and use them on farm as a mixed feed for livestock. So he didn't have to worry about separation. He was really motivated to get a mixed feed and try and get on top of the, the wild oat burden. Um, and we had quite significant uh, impact that year. So 74% less dry weed biomass. So we went through the field of him and um, harvested quadrats of, of weeds. Uh, or quadrats of the field, sorry, um, and found you have 74% less weed biomass. So there was a small penalty on the bean yield, but um, overall he had this much greater crop that could be used as a greater yield that could be used as a mixed feed and also managed to get on top of the, of the weeds in that field. So he did repeat it again in 2019, um, but this time did slightly decrease the wheat seed rates to 100 kilograms per hectare and it increased the bean seed rate to 200 kilograms per hectare to, to try and bring the, the bean yield up there with a monoculture comparison of 200 kilograms per hectare and we saw pretty much very similar results with 73% less weed biomass in that field so although we haven't got a huge amount of replicates there's some indication um, that there's quite significant impact there so it's something that he's going to continue doing we also looked at wheat quality just to try and understand if there's an impact on protein in there and we saw um, an increase in protein quantum and the hagberg falling number in that crop um, so additional benefits for him there another farmer we're working with that people may have come across is andy howard um, who did his Nuffield scholarships on intercropping five or six years ago now and has been trialling a number of different mixtures. So one of the trials we did with him last year was looking at linseed and oats and really to look at aiding establishment and reducing flax flea beetle pressure and it came from an observation on his, that he'd seen in his fields where, that where he had wild oats again in the previous year he had better establishment um, of 
vintage in that field. So he wondered if there was some kind of beneficial interaction going on between the plants. So he drilled linseed and oats with the cross slots in one pass in March. And what we saw was that there was a higher average linseed yield in the treatments with the oats. And we did pest traps in the field, so we knew there was a presence of the flax flea beetle there. So we were making the assumption that the, the damage and looking at the shot holding in the, the leaves um, was how we assessed the pest damage, basically. All of the intercrop mixtures gave a land equivalent ratio of more than one. Um, so that's basically comparing the, the overall production of an area of land was greater in the mixture than in the monocrop comparison. And have you done anything much on um, oilseed rape and flea beetle? with oilseed rape mixtures mm. um, we did this year do a trial with him with oilseed rape peas and oats um, but unfortunately the oilseed rape um, failed really so it struggled to establish and, the, and then he lost it further down the line he did still have a pea harvest so that kind of shows the benefits of, of the intercrop there yeah um, and also even though he hadn't applied any nitrogen he did do a plant tissue test and found that the oilseed rape had enough nitrogen. So yeah, there are farmers within the group that are looking at different oilseed rape mixtures, mixing in with phacelia, vetch, um, buckwheat, um, different clovers, but we're not doing specific trials on that with them at the moment. That's something that they just wanted to try out themselves. And how could this fit into a conventional system? I'm thinking there might be a few kind of potential challenges, um, like the effect it has on the rotation or things like processing and marketing the crop. Yeah, so I guess one of the main things is around drilling and harvest where we get questions and many farmers have found ways to work with their existing machinery. Um, so things like drilling in, in two passes or mixing in the hopper if possible. Um, others have invested in specific kits. So Andy Howard is working with the cross slot and John Pawsey with the system chameleon, which can help as well, but it, it shouldn't, it doesn't need to be a barrier. There's, there's ways around that. Um, in terms of the rotation, it is a good question and it's one that is still being investigated as work going on in Sweden at the moment at SLU where they're looking at the impact across the rotation if you're if you've got legumes in there regularly more regularly than you normally would be recommended to do so and looking at a theory around if that in the pest and disease pressure is diluted with those additional crops within the crop mixture um over the rotation um but it does basically I guess the Andy's thinking is around actually kind of moving away from some of those ideas of the rotation as I understand it and, and looking at using the mixtures and that you're getting the diversity at that level but it does kind of bring into question those ideas of the rotation um, but yeah definitely he's still looking at moving crops around the farm and, and having as much diversity as possible in, in different plant groups um, in terms of end use, it's really important to consider what you'll do with the end product, obviously. And so there's various options that people are doing that can be kind of working with the existing markets. So things like mixed whole crops as an animal feed or for biodigestion, mixed feed on farm, as we talked about, um, or looking at just one crop being taken to harvest, which is something that a number of the farmers are doing. So using it as a trap crop or nurse crop and then spraying off and destroying it. 
Um, or another option is on-farm separation. So Andy has an on-farm cleaner or others are contracting a seed cleaner to come onto farm um, and, and separate them. And there's a lot of different separators available as well. And in other parts of Europe, some of these are on-farm or, or contracted services and cooperatives. So that there are opportunities there. And that can then go into the conventional chain, but also then worth looking at other premium markets. Um, and also there is increasing potential um, to be sold as a mixed crop. So in France, grain buyers are, are willing to, not all, but are willing to buy a mixed crop and separate it. Um, and even some bakers and millers that are, are willing to to buy mixed grain. Um, so there are alternative markets and value change that are, are, are building around this, and, and particularly with kind of increased demand for pulses and plant-based diets. Okay, so there's definitely ways around it. Absolutely, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Brilliant. No problem. So we've talked about nature solutions, but what about products specifically engineered to combat a pest or disease, but one that is entirely biological? Now, to tell us more, we have Dr. Roma Gwynn here, and she's a specialist in bioprotection technologies in crop production. Hi, Roma. Great to have you. Morning, Alice. So, Roma, I think you said um, there are more biological plant protection products being registered now than chemical which you know is maybe a sign of the times but what exactly are biological controls yeah it's very difficult because we bandy around a lot of different words and sometimes the meaning of these words is not clear so what's coming forward at the moment is the idea that we have a umbrella word which is called bioprotectants and Bioprotectants are biological technologies, and we're generally referring to four categories of substances. So we have macroorganisms. So these are natural enemies, and these are um, things like ladybirds, or um, that eat uh, paras- eat uh, pre- sorry the ladybirds, which are predators, um, and eat the organism. Or they can be parasitoids, which lay their eggs in an organism, or they can be. Um, Parasites which burrow into them, and many of um, UK farmers and growers know en- nematodes as entomopathogenic nematodes because there's quite a lot of products available in the UK. And in fact, the world's biggest producer of entomopathogenic nematodes is based down in in Littlehampton in Sussex. Then the next category are microorganisms, and this is microorganisms, this is bacteria, fungi and viruses, which are active against plant diseases, against insects, and occasionally against weeds, but there's very few examples of those. Then we have something called natural substances. Um, The easiest way to think of natural substances are these like plant extracts, Um, so orange oil is a good example of that, and it's a a substance which is can be both an insecticide and a fungicide. Um, and we have a good example in the UK of a company called Eden Research who've developed um, a triple active um, blend, which are plant extracts. Then we also have semiochemicals. Semiochemicals are probably best known because these are pheromones um, and they're often used by farmers to monitor pest populations. And there's now products available which you can um, use to in the field. And a good example is something that is mating disruptions. So what happens is there's a little um, 
usually a PVC container and they're put around, say, an apple orchard. And what happens is they release a sufficient pheromone that um, the males are unable to fe- find the females, so they can't mate, and so you don't next get the next generation. What's characteristic of all of these technologies is that they have multiple modes of action against the pests, but also they have interactions with the plants. Um, what we can see in Europe now is that the number of active substances that are in this bioprotectant category represent about 30 to 40 percent of the active substances. And since 2016, the majority of the products coming forward are actually these bioprotectant technologies. Okay, and we hear a lot about them in horticulture. So as you say, things like pheromone disruptors. But are they a realistic option for, you know, a more broad acre crop, say wheat, or perhaps more relevantly, something like oilseed rape, what with um, all the flea beetle problems we're experiencing? Yes, it's true that the early um, movement of the products is in the horticulture industry. And a lot of people think that that's because that's where they only work. Um, But that's not true. They actually do work in, in broad acre outside situations and they can work really well some of the reasons why they haven't moved forward has been to to do with for example that the cost and the technology developing um and so therefore the 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 numbers added up better in horticulture but what we can increasingly see is these technologies being used in um arable situations so there's a really lovely example of a semio chemical being used in southern spain um which is it's just an area where the rice is grown within a nature reserve and they're able to use the semio chemicals to manage the pests and not have to use any chemistry um, and that's working very successfully and the economics stack up on that then I can think of an example. I'm working on a project, a global project at the moment for a really nasty pest of maize. It's an insect that eats um, and really damages the maize crop. And so there's a big program of work going on there. And what we've found and been able to identify is there's a lot of microorganisms which are really effective against these insect pests. So there's viruses, which the viruses sit on the leaves of the plants and the insect eats them. And the great thing about them is the only thing they'll kill is the insect that ate them and then they're also trying another microorganism and what that microorganism does is it it attaches to the cuticle of the insect and it goes into the insect um, and kills it that way so these are really specific technologies but because the producers have advanced in how they can produce them they have advanced in their understanding of them and then I think in, if we think about in Europe, there's a really good example now in Eastern Europe, companies developed a microorganism to put on the seeds. And when they put the microorganism in the seed, it um, protects the plant or against diseases, and that's in sunflower, maize, and in soybean. And it reduces the level of disease below the economic damage threshold, but they're also seeing benefits in the health and the vigour of the plants. And they're also seeing a reduction in the mycotoxins to below the levels that the chemicals would give as well. So there's examples where actually some of this biology is working certainly as well as, and in some cases, better than. And I think this is true of every technology they all have really strong um, features and it's about using the features in the best way possible. So long-term, yeah, I absolutely think the use of biocontrol in arable is feasible. So 
where I can imagine if we can find technologies which have been specifically developed for arable crops, that we're really going to see this field moving very fast. Yeah, and I suppose it's just a matter of waiting for these to be developed and to become available. Um, But how could these fit into an arable farmer's crop protection programme, particularly in terms of things like cost? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good question, and that's probably the key part of these technologies is is how to bring them into to crop protection. We we know that crop protection is moving forward very fast now, and with um, following good practice for integrated pest management with a biology first approach, which is what has been advocated um, as good practice now, so that we have resilient crop protection. In in those um, situations, what we're looking at doing is taking the best technology we can and we're layering all those elements of the technology one on top of the other so we're not waiting till we have a really big problem with pests or disease we're think being thoughtful thinking about the biology of the of the crop and how it's growing saying okay how do we manage this how do we layer in first thinking about the agronomy thinking about the resistant varieties we have available thinking about what we can do to encourage what's already there to, to be to come forward such as having you know uh field margins where you're allowing um, a wide range of uh, plants to grow to encourage natural enemies and then what you bring into this and say okay we think this is going to get out of kilter um, so we need to bring in um, a bioprotectant so what have we got available how do we do that which are the best ones that we could use and then at the end of the thing well actually but sometimes those bioprotectants are not giving us enough control so we come in with a chemical and so when you look at the whole system, the, the cost to the farmer is, is looking at it within that whole system. And how do you put those elements together so that you can deliver um, a crop protection system that is allows the farmer to get good quality and yield, but still get the economics of doing that? And it's more complicated and it requires us to layer these things together, but entirely possible. And, and there are good examples of where bioprotectants have been used in good IPM programmes and the that are effective and that the economics add up. And do you think there could ever be a case where we stop using these chemical um, solutions and move purely to biological? I think there will be some examples of that. We already see that happening in horticulture. But I think if we're being wise and thinking about how we can move forward with crop protection, we should use all the technologies that we have available and we should look at how we integrate those effectively. So I wouldn't rule out just chemicals or just biologicals. I think we should take the best technology that we have available that is causing minimum harm to, to humans but minimum impact on the environment as well yeah i suppose that's why we say integrated yes yeah it's it's taking that integrated approach but i think what we need to do um, or be better at doing um is thinking more as biologists and less as chemists sort of saying this is this is actually about biology it's a bit complicated it's a little bit hard um but if we do that we can build resilient systems that help us manage um pests and diseases as we go forward but also within the conditions we have which is sort of saying that we have more volatility in in our climate as well thank you very much roma and yeah really fascinating stuff thanks alex thanks for asking me (laughs) 
and that is I'm afraid all we've got time for for today but I hope that you found some of these more novel IPM methods that we've discussed interesting and I'm sure any of our speakers would be very happy to hear from you if you wanted to find out more. Thank you for listening. Oh.